Welcome, everyone. It's really good to be with you again. I want to give a special welcome back to you. If maybe you joined us last week or in recent weeks for maybe the first time, I think there's a lot of people that are just kind of maybe not church types necessarily who are finding this a good time to kind of connect with God and check things out a little bit, maybe tap into some of the peace and the hope and the joyful outlook that we're all looking for right now. So if that's you, Welcome. We really mean it. Um, we're really glad you're here hanging out with us and hope it's feeling more like home all the time for you. You know, Easter is a big deal for Christians all over the world, kind of like our Super Bowl at Mountain, really. You know, we planned for Easter for months and obviously all that went out the window. But while it may not have been what we had planned for, you know, it, it definitely was what we needed. You know, and isn't that just like God where, you know, he takes difficult adverse situations and somehow wrestles something good out of it, just like he did on the first Easter, right? Where things were looking so bad when Jesus was crucified, but then it turned into just what we needed when he rose from the dead. And and now we even call that horrible day Good Friday. So, you know, a few weeks back when we figured out we wouldn't be able to physically gather for Easter, it looked so bad, you know, it's just like, oh no, you know, but as only God could do what seemed like it would just be this bad thing turned out to be amazing. And even though our church buildings were empty, uh, so was the tomb, which means that our hearts are full of the peace and the joy of the risen Jesus. And Easter was absolutely awesome. Just amazing. And just thanks to everyone who made that possible. You know, we reached more people than we ever have in our 196 year history. Somewhere between probably 35 and 50 some thousand people participated in one of our Easter services. It's like just off the charts, right? So, so God is always at work, even in the darkness. Um, and can figure out how to pull something um, out of what seems like a bad situation. Um, And I I actually really hope that you sense and trust God doing that in your own life right now in the middle of this crisis. You know, it may not be what you planned, but that you could trust that God is going to pull something that you need out of this. And I just think we just got to hold on, my friends, because the God of light is bringing us through. And, and it's not just a bunch of positive hype or, you know, God speak. That's who God is. And that, that's really what we're uh, talking about, um, who, not the World Health Organization, even though they've been in the news a lot this week. We're talking about the question, who is God? And that question really, really matters. As we've said, what comes into your mind when you think about God? is the most important thing about you. Now, a lot of people today, they just kind of think, well, whatever God is to you is fine. I'll kind of imagine what God is like for me. You know, it's like it's a personal opinion thing. And however popular that viewpoint is, it's just wrong. And I don't want to insult anybody, but it's stupid. You can't just make up whatever you want to be true about someone or whatever you think is true about God. And then pretend it's true and live your life as if it were true. There's just way too much at stake. Instead, what we really need right now, all of us, is not some kind of lame like pop culture theory about God based on someone's personal preference. We need to know who God really is so that we can experience the real God and live in a relationship with that God. So that's why we're looking at some of the names of God in the Bible, because they reveal the truest character about God. To know God's names is to know God and understand 
who God is. We want to be able to say what David said in Psalm 9. Those who know your name will trust in you. For you, Lord, have never forsaken those who seek you. And I hope you come with that seeking attitude today because this, this really isn't like a study or some kind of academic exercise about the names of God. We want to be able to say with our own faith that, you know, you are my God and I know you and that is who you are. So I'm really excited to share with you today another name for God. And it's really just one big idea I want to share with you. We're going to look at it from a few different angles. And I think it's going to be super encouraging uh, for all of us. All right. So let's jump in. First, let me ask you, how's your eyesight? Okay. My eyes are getting worse every year. These are actually trifocals or whatever. I think graded lenses. I don't know. But I got one for looking far away and the middle is close, is medium. And then my close up is way down here. So I'm always kind of doing this stuff. If you're on a Zoom call with me, it's really, I'm, I'm always looking at you like this because that's, I just can't see. I remember the, the first day I got glasses. I was just a kid and I came out of the eyeglass place with these new glasses on. I was looking around just like, whoa, it was so cool. I read the sign across the street, Kmart. I remember it like it was yesterday. Uh, it was always there, I guess. I just couldn't read it before. Um, I guess they finally gave me one of those uh, tests, you know, do you need glasses tests? And I guess they figured out I finally did. I went to the eye doc and, and he asked me, have your eyes ever been checked before? And I said, no, they've always been brown. <laughs> uh, which reminds me of the cross-eyed kindergarten teacher. Did you hear about her? She got fired from her job. Yeah, she, she just couldn't control her pupils. So, yeah. You know, I used to date an optometrist. Um, she wanted me to see other people. I'm sorry, these eyeball jokes are, are, are pretty low brow. They, they just keep getting cornea and cornea, don't they? I'm, I'm, I'm almost losing my focus here. Sorry about that. All right. I, I know I better put a lid on it before you lash out at me. Okay. You guys have any idea how hard it is to tell bad jokes when there's nobody to groan at you? Here, here's the deal. Here's the deal. Our vision is not perfect. We need eye doctors and bifocals and contacts and all that. And even then we miss stuff. I open the cupboard and I'm looking around like, hey, Carla, where is the such and so? And she comes in and grabs it. It's right here in front of you. We, we miss even obvious things. But here's my point. Not God. God sees everything clearly, always. And some of us have kind of become accustomed to think of that as bad news, but it's not. It's, it's amazing news. Sometimes people will use that expression, I see you. And it can be just like a, a way to acknowledge maybe a friend who got a promotion. You could say, okay, Mr. Manager, I see you. You know, if your girlfriend shows up in an amazing outfit, you could say, love those shoes. I see you, girl. You know, or if someone's attractive to you, you could say, I see you. You know, but there's a deeper meaning to that phrase when it conveys that you really notice someone, that you care about them. You, you, you understand them. You say, I see you. And however you may feel about yourself, you're not invisible to me. A couple of weeks ago, I was on my phone in the living room. All of us were actually in there, but I was so engrossed on what I was looking at that I finally kind of came to and realized that my daughter, Ellie, had been speaking to me, trying to get my attention. And I, I completely missed it. I didn't see her. I didn't hear her. That doesn't make us feel very good when that happens, does it? But conversely, when someone looks right at you in the eye and says, I see you. 
That's a special kind of vision. And those words, I see you, are exactly what's needed to fill the hunger down in the center of every human heart. So if you have a Bible, open it up to Genesis chapter 16, the first book of the Bible. Let me provide a little, provide a little background, a little context here. Um, God promised a man named Abram and his wife Sarai. That's before he changed their names to Abraham and Sarah. He says, I have a plan. I want to bless you so you can be a blessing to the whole world. And the way I'm going to do that is by giving you a great big family. And that's going to start with you with a baby boy. And so having a child in that ancient culture was a huge deal. It's how your legacy was passed on. And, and God says, you're going to have this baby and many descendants. And that's how I'm going to save the world. Well, it's this huge promise. And it sounds crazy, especially because... Sarai is already really old and she actually laughs at God because she just can't see that happening at all. So God says to Abram and Sarai, he says, um, I want you to walk away from everything you know, your family, your hometown, everything familiar to you. Where are we going, they say. And he says, I'll show you once you get started. So in a way, it kind of reminds me of a situation like we're in, like right now, like kind of have left life as we once knew it Seems like some of that's gone, but we don't really know where we're going to end up either. God says to them in that in-between place, probably the same thing he says to us, like, trust me, I got a plan. And so off they go. Well, 10 years go by and Sarai isn't getting any younger. She's feeling stuck and she's waiting. She starts worrying. Sound familiar? You ever prayed for something? But it felt like God was not working fast enough. You just wonder if God remembers you and what you're going through. Sarai gets impatient and she takes things into her own hands with a, a plan of her own. So we're not the only ones who've done that to try to you know, run ahead of God sometimes because we hate waiting. Never really works out very well when we try to do it by ourselves. But she's so desperate and afraid. She tells her husband, Abram, look, I don't know what to do. I don't know what God's up to. I can't see that he's up to anything. So I, I don't know. She says, we, we have this Egyptian slave girl with us, Hagar. She's young. Why don't you just sleep with her so she could have a baby and God's promise can go forward? And Abram says, okay. <laughs> guys, guys, there are times when your wife speaks from a place of hurt and frustration or anger, and she's going to say something to you like, just go ahead and do whatever. And you're supposed to say, no, dear, I would never. But Abram is like, I, and as crazy as it sounds, that sort of thing happened in that culture quite often. Well, guess what? Hagar gets pregnant. And immediately Sarai is miserable. This child that she so desperately wanted and was waiting on is inside another woman. And, and the belly kicks and all the attention people making over Hagar is more than she can stand. So Sarai becomes bitter and angry and hateful and she makes Hagar's life an utter hell. And everyone in this story now is miserable. Everyone, especially though Hagar, who's this poor, voiceless invisible slave girl just doing what she's told but completely dependent on her master for her well-being and now pregnant and hated for it abused mistreated and who's there to protect her or stick up for her nobody who's there to believe her side of the story to care about her heart in this nobody 
And she's so badly mistreated that she finally can't take it anymore and feels like she's got no better option than just to get out of that toxic situation and run for her life, to escape that abusive situation. So, so here you've got this poor, pregnant girl in the desert. She's a woman in, in a barren wilderness, no food, no protection, no friends, no help, no shelter. We think it's bad having no restaurants, no movie theaters, no toilet paper. Her situation's horrible. And we can maybe relate a little bit to it, can't we? She's in the middle of nowhere. Talk about social distancing. Her life is, is derailed. She has no idea what lies ahead. She's stuck hurting weeping alone in the desert. My friend, listen. Sometimes the desert is where our true healing begins. Sometimes it's in the driest, most barren places where God shows up. And that's what happens in this story for Hagar. It's the most remarkable thing. Remember, Hagar's not really, she's not an Israelite. She doesn't know God. She doesn't worship God. She's not one of the believers. She's just a nobody. And, and she, she wanders out of town. She finds this spring of well water and collapses in a heap at the end of her rope. And Genesis 16, verse 7 says that God shows up there for her. And the angel of the Lord found Hagar. Found her. God shows up. He went looking for this this pagan, invisible woman by the well. And he says to her in verse 8, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from? And where are you going? That just strikes me as so beautiful. Because God doesn't address her like everyone else did as a slave girl or hey you, the invisible nobody woman. He he gives her worth and, and dignity by calling her by name. That's how you get a relationship started. You start with names. And God says, Hagar. And God asks a question of her that nobody in the world was asking her because he cares about her in a way that nobody was. Asking, where are you coming from? What's your story? What's going on in your life? How you doing? And where are you going? Where, what are your dreams? You want to honor someone? You want to show respect or give dignity to someone? You slow down enough to say, tell me your story. What's life like for you these days? And where are you going? What are your, what are your dreams? And God does that for Hagar, gives her value and worth, calls her by name and wants to know where she's coming from, where she's going. The truth is she doesn't really even know whether she's coming or going. And sometimes neither do we. I do know this, that some of us are probably running right now just like Hagar. We're running from something or someone. Part of our life, from the past, maybe a hurt that goes really deep. Something you try not to think about very often. But it happened or something a person did or what what you did and it kind of chases you. Like Hagar was running, maybe you're running from something or someone, trying to get away from an ugly, painful something in your past. I mean, we're not sure where we're running to when we have this kind of messed up past. We just feel stuck and alone and in a desert place. And I want you to hear today, if that's you, that God finds you and he calls you gently by name. In fact, the Bible says he has his name already engraved on the palm of his hand. You're, you're God's tattoo. 
and he knows your story and he wants to guide you into a future that's better and hopeful and beautiful. Hagar says to God, I'm running away from my mistress. She just pours her heart out and tells God the whole story. And in an act of tremendous compassion, God says, Hagar, I know this may be difficult to hear, but you need to stop running. And I I want you to go back home. Go back to be with Abraham and Sarai. And God says, I'm in this. I'm for you. I'm, I'm with you. The way forward is not running away from it, but to go back through it. But I'll be there with you. Sometimes, my friend, listen, the only way forward is through it. And God says, I'm with you through it. Now, a lot of times when you hear this part of the story, it almost sounds cruel, like God's sending her back to an abusive or bad situation. That's not what's going on here. It's not how she heard it. It's not what happened. God is intervening in her life to reverse this curse, to to bless her and tell her you can go home and you have a place again and I'm going to take care of things. I'm your protector. And And then in this incredible act of kindness, God elevates her even more and gives her a promise as beautiful as the one he gave to Sarai. He says, you, Hagar, are going to have numerous offspring. One of them is going to become named Ishmael, a wild donkey of a man and the father of many nations. That's another story for another time. But God says, you're that special, Hagar. And you look at her and you see what happens when God meets you in the desert and calls you by name and sees you like that. She has a whole new attitude and you can too. She has a new outlook on herself and her life. She was alone, but now she has God and she's so touched. Look at, check this out. Here's what happens. Here's the crux. Verse 13, she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I've now seen the one who sees me. And there it is. That's a new name for God. Given to God by a a slave girl. God called her by name Hagar to begin the relationship. And now she reciprocates and calls God by a new name. She says, you're the God who sees me. In Hebrew, she says, you are El Roi. El Roi. El is a generic name for God. And Roi means the one who sees me. And when you can finally say to God, I I see you. And you're the one who sees me. My God, that's who you are. When you can say that, your life will change. I, I was alone, but you see me and now I see you. I was afraid, but now you see me and I see you. My God, that's who you are. And this... Lonely, scared woman in the desert has a relationship with God. It's on a first-name basis, just like you and I can have. It's amazing. You may feel like, you know, this coronavirus thing's put you in a real rough patch, like a desert, just with everything going on. And like Hagar, a lot of our lives have been upended. The future's unclear. The present is just plain hard. And things can seem unfair, just like they were for her. You're not sure if you're coming or going. And you don't have any power to fix anything. Here's the good news today. Whoever you are and whatever you're going through, God sees you. He says, I found you. And I'm working in ways you can't always see. What an awesome and beautiful thing to know that God says you matter that much. I see you. And so all through the Bible, we've got these beautiful examples of how God shows up and 
in the dry desert places and says, I see you. Proverbs says the eyes of the Lord are everywhere. You know, Exodus says, you know, to Moses, God says, I, I see the misery of my people. Uh, you see it in Second Chronicles, the eyes of the Lord range throughout the whole earth. You're looking for hearts that are committed to him. It's it just ideas over and over and over again. The last couple of weeks, I've been um, beginning every day with the simple words of Psalm 121. I want to offer it to you. Maybe you want to do the same. It's one of my favorites. I've always loved it, but now I'm kind of like, you know how you just start seeing things in old familiar things that you never saw before right now? That's what's going on with Psalm 121. And and when I was thinking about this message, I saw some brand new things. Psalm 121 is written by David when he's in a horribly dark place. And for people like us who are fighting some discouragement right now, it's a great word. Here's what it says. I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? And the answer, my help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And then when it feels like you're going to lose it, like you're sliding into a pit, it goes on to say, he will not let your foot slip because he watches over you and he will not slumber. Like I slumber, like I'm so exhausted right now. When I, if, I, if I sit down for 10 minutes past eight o'clock at night, my eyes are going to go shut. But God isn't like that. He doesn't doze off. He watches. Look how many times the word watches is in there. Verse 4, he says, he watches over Israel. He doesn't slumber or sleep. He watches over you. He's your shade. He will watch over you. He'll keep you from harm. And when we don't know whether we're coming or going, whether we're ever going to get back to life like it was or what the future holds, it says in verse 8 that the Lord will watch over your coming and your going both now and forevermore. Mark was telling me how they're dog used to sleep in the same bed with their little girl. And that dog and that girl, they loved each other so much. Every night that dog would claw, crawl into bed and they would go to sleep together. And it was that way right up until the last night of that dog's life when that dog died in bed with that little girl. And it was so hard for that girl. She missed that dog so much. It got to where she really couldn't sleep very well. And so her bedroom was right off the living room. And when she'd go to bed, she'd ask to leave the door open and position herself so she could see out into the living room. And on the couch, she'd want her mom and dad to just sit there. Would you just sit there a while, she'd say. And they would do that for a long time. And then they'd say after a while, I bet she's asleep. And they'd try to get up and tiptoe away. And she'd hear, they'd hear her, hear her cry, oh, dad, mom, you know, kind of drove them crazy for a while. But also, you know, they realized it's something awesome about knowing that they could just give her that assurance so she could rest and have peace just by their being there and being able to say, I see you, I'm here, you're okay. And friends, I think we're all kind of going through something like that. So much loss right now. We feel a lot like that little girl, kind of unsettled. Some of you maybe can't even sleep. Some of us have lost things that you'll never get back. Maybe there's more loss on the way. You know, memories and birthdays, anniversaries, graduations. But more than that, jobs, re- retirement funds, whole businesses. We're, we're losing a lot. And, you know, just like that little girl, we maybe just want to say in the middle of this, you know, I lift up my eyes. I wonder sometimes where's help going to come from? And if you've ever had a moment like that, don't forget the good news today. There's an answer. And the answer is El Roi, the God who made heaven and earth is the same God who sees you right now. And he's not trying to tiptoe away. He's not napping. He's watching over your life. Even if you don't know whether you're coming or going, he's watching. Jesus said he even sees the smallest bird 
fall to the ground. And if his eye is on the sparrow, then I know he watches me and he watches you. And this is El Roi God who sees and watches and who who came to earth in Jesus Christ. And Jesus had these physical eyeballs with real retinas and pupils. And with those eyes, he saw people and the world in a way that confirmed that that's how God sees us. One day, Jesus and his friends are walking and um, they're, they're going to a town called Nain. And, and as he's going in, there's a funeral procession coming out. You know, a funeral procession, people, you know, driving slow with their lights on. And, and other people seem like they always just kind of want to zoom by and say, kind of get out of my way. I got places to go and stuff to do. They don't give another thought. And that's a bad feeling when you're one of the ones and you have people zooming by you and you're experiencing loss and it just seems like the world doesn't care. And that's how that woman in that funeral procession probably felt. The Bible says she's a widow. Her husband's already gone. And now she's walking with a little casket of her only son. And with no man left in her life, she's probably like Hagar. She's alone in the world, heading out into the wilderness to bury her son. And that's when she meets Jesus as he comes in. And as he walks by, he says, I see you. (laughs) I love that. Luke 7. 13 says, when the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her. It's the heart of God. And he says, don't cry. And Jesus healed that boy, gave, gave him back to that woman with the same resurrection power that raised Jesus. And, and it all begins when Jesus sees what we're going through. So just know that whatever grief or loss you have, Jesus meets you in the midst of it. Even if no one else seems to get it or care, he says, I see you. And like he gave that boy back to his mother, His power is the only thing that can really help restore your life in the ways that matter most. My friend Greg gave me this little bottle recently. He got it in Israel. It's called a tear bottle. In biblical times, uh, like say when a soldier would go off to war, he would leave a tear bottle like this behind with his mother or his wife or sweetheart. And the idea was that whenever they missed him so much that they would begin to cry, they would collect their tears in, in this bottle. I don't know how they, how they did it, but they would do it. And it would hold their tears to show him how much they missed him when he returned. Just a symbol of their love and concern. Or, or if mourners were going out to the grave, they would collect their tears in a bottle as they walked. A tangible indication of how much a person was loved. And so David, in the Old Testament, is going through the lowest point in his life horrible place. And he draws strength when he realizes in Psalm 56, God, you keep track of all my sorrows. You see me. You've collected all my tears in a bottle. You've recorded each one in your book. Did you ever stop to think about that? That God has a tear bottle for you? You've never cried a tear in your life that God didn't see. You've never had a scary moment, a a sad moment, a single meltdown in your life, when God wasn't there saying, I I see you catching your tears in his bottle. Even when you've not been faithful to God, God is faithful to you. He's keeping watch, keeping track, catching each tear. It's it's, it's amazing to think about, isn't it? How personal a creator God can be like that. I I hate to cry in public. I don't know. I just don't feel comfortable with it. I generally try to wipe it away or say, oh, darn allergies or something. But you know, every time I hurt, every time I've experienced loss in my life, God's been there. And he knows. So I know some of us are criers. You ball buckets of real tears at a drop of a hat, Hallmark commercial. Some of us are stuffers, we're stoics, you know. Never really cry at all, but 
doesn't matter. All of us experience loss, and some of us, we're all experiencing loss right now. We all know what it's like to be sad or to feel punched in the gut or knocked down or to feel abandoned or anxious. And what I wanted to tell you today is that God's keeping track of all that, all of it. It matters to God. He says, I see you. I see your sorrows. I see your pain. I see your tears. Because that's who God is. He didn't just create you. He loves you. And he says, I see you. And it's so beautiful. And it can change how you move forward in your life, just like it did for Hagar. Let me, let me share one last story with you about Jesus. It, it's about a time when he sent his disciples on ahead. The disciples are going off to... Um, you know, in a boat. And Jesus says, I just got to have some time with the Father by myself. And while Jesus is on the land, the storm clouds roll in. And and verse 48 says, he saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Wow, can we relate to that or what? We're all straining at the oars right now. The wind is against, we're in a storm. And if you've ever been in a boat in a storm, you feel helpless. Well, that's how they felt. And that's how we feel now. Scared. A ways from shore, like this is not over yet. That's where we are. And they're thinking, there's no way Jesus can help us. We're out here in the middle of the lake. But Jesus sees them struggling. He sees them and he goes out to them walking on the lake. It's not a problem for him. He can find you in the wilderness, in the storm, on the lake, doesn't matter. And they're scared when they see him, and they're even more scared because they think he's a ghost or something. And Jesus calls out to them, and he yells, and I love this. He says in verse 50, take courage. It's me. Don't be afraid. And then he climbed with them right into that boat, and he calmed that storm. And my friend, that is exactly what God wants to do in your life and my life right now in the midst of this coronavirus crisis. That's his message for you. Take courage. It's me. I'm here. Don't be afraid. Did you notice verse 48? It says he saw. They're straining at the oars, but Jesus saw them. He sees you straining at the oars in the middle of the storm. He, he sees a, there's a man right now who's, who's struggling to keep your head above water because your business is about to shut down. There's no wind coming. He sees you. He sees the one who had to let employees go this week, who had to make difficult decisions at work. He sees every mom straining at the oars every day, the homeschoolers going, trying to figure out how to stretch the budget and handle the conflict and get everybody in bed. And your boat is rocking. He sees you. The, the man who, who had a secure job, but now you lost it. Jesus sees you. The tired mom straining at the oars, the dad working from home best he can. Folks going stir crazy, elderly who are like really worried right now. Students wondering, what does this mean for, for the future? Someone who's diagnosed with COVID. Someone who's grieving the loss of someone they've lost. Healthcare workers. We're all over the map right now, but the common denominator is this. We're straining at the oars. Tired, discouraged, in a storm. And you know what? The message is simple. Jesus sees you. And there's a time coming very soon when he'll climb in the boat and calm this whole thing. And until then, he has the same message for you that he he did for the disciples back then. And here it is. Take courage. It's me. Don't be afraid. God 
sees you. So turn your eyes on him. Trust him. Take courage because there's a God who sees you, knows you, and loves you.